The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Welcome back. Well, Jackie, I understand we've arranged to do something different for today's podcast. Yeah, today we're going to introduce you to another podcast called Energy Versus Climate that's hosted by three people that we know well and are quite well known in Canadian energy discussions. So Energy Versus Climate is a podcast that is about one hour long and is dropped every two weeks. And the Mm -hmm. three hosts are Ed Whittingham, which I know you know well. I know all of them, Sarah Hastings-Simon, David Keith. And uh, we're delighted to be able to showcase their podcast and they're going to showcase one of ours. Exactly. And the one we decided to showcase to our listeners is a podcast they originally recorded in October on the topic of decarbonizing aviation. And they had a guest, Stephen Barrett from MIT, join their podcast. And I thought it was really interesting. You know, aviation is responsible for about 12% of all global emissions. And it's also really difficult to abate. It's also still growing. Before the pandemic, There, yeah. it was growing and there was an outlook for continued growth. So I, I really found it a great discussion and thought it would be a good one to share with our audience. Yeah, I think it's a great one to share. This issue of decentralized carbon emissions. For example, a coal plant is highly centralized. So you can shut down the coal plant and substitute it with natural gas, renewables, whatever, to reduce your emissions. Whereas with aviation, it's very difficult because the emissions are coming out the back of a jet engine at 30,000 feet. So it's uh, much more of a difficult challenge. Yeah. And he'll, they'll talk about the fact there's opportunities to make the fuel cleaner mm-hmm. and use the existing planes, which are expensive and there's a huge fleet of them. They're not likely to disappear anytime soon, but there are technologies to look at hydrogen and electrification. So I don't want to give too much away. I hope you really enjoy their podcast and check it out. You can, if you're interested in following their podcast, they have their own website, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. And also it's available on a lot of the major podcast apps. Okay. Well, let's let it roll. Hi, I'm Ed Whittingham and you're listening to Energy versus Climate. The show where my co-hosts David Keith, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and I debate today's energy challenges, highlighting the Albertan and Canadian context. If this is your first time joining us, Energy vs. Climate is a live webinar and podcast that drops every other week. Visit energyversusclimate.com to register for updates and get exclusive access to join our live webinars, ask us questions, and engage with us directly. On today's show... When it comes to our transportation system, decarbonizing aviation is a very expensive ton of CO2 to go after. But potential solutions abound, including lower carbon liquid jet fuel, electric planes, hydrogen, and more energy efficient aircraft. To help us assess the options, we are joined by special guest Dr. Stephen Barrett. Dr. Barrett is a professor and department head of aeronautics and astronautics at MIT where his research focuses on helping aviation to get to zero environmental impacts. Stephen is also director of the MIT Laboratory for Aviation and the Environment and leads MIT's Electric Aircraft Initiative. Some of you listeners may recognize him from his appearances on CBC's science affairs show, Quirks and Quarks. I personally learned a lot about the massive challenge decarbonizing aviation on the kind of time frame we need, and I harbor a guess that you will too. 
here's the show. Let's start things off with this week's energy versus climate news and not news segments. Sarah, you've got a piece of news. That's right. My new, my piece of news is news that's not news, so it's news. And that is the story about uh, real steel in the ground or in the water uh, for an offshore wind farm in the UK. So this is uh, the UK's Hornsea 2 offshore wind farm. It will be the largest uh, in the world when it's completed. Um, and it's just reached another couple of construction milestones. So basically, um, all of the foundations are in place. There's about a third of the turbines left to install, um, and the offshore substation is finished. And this is a 1.3 gigawatt wind farm. Um, and it is, I think, news because it's really big uh, project that's moving forward without a lot of uh, delays or, you know, not not actually happening. We talk about what could you do to uh, grow renewable energy. Um, and I think that there's also the potential for it to get even bigger because while this uh, world's largest offshore wind farm at uh, 1.3 gigawatts is going to be using or is using um, about 8 megawatt turbines, um, the 14 megawatt uh, new G model uh, has just now um, been operating for the first time. So feels a little bit like the sky's the limit when it comes to uh, offshore wind farm size, but I think it's starting also to get to a size that's really meaningful um, when we talk about some of these projects, especially with really large capacity factors upwards of uh, 60-65%. So really it's news because it's the renewable electricity industry delivering on its potential after many years of promising to do so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, projects moving forward in a world where we sometimes like to talk about big projects, you know, not, not happening. Yeah. Yeah. Steady increase in capacity factors, uh, and, and steady, steady decrease in cost of offshore, especially. And I think that to me is the bigger part of the news because offshore was very expensive and it's really coming, coming closer to conversions. Well, I'd love to see the CEO has the news conference saying, see, we told you so now wait for the next one. All right. Well, I've got a piece that's not news. And last Thursday, the Alberta government released the final report on its inquiry into sources of funding for climate and environmental activism uh, work that really focused on Alberta's oil sands. And after spending three and a half million bucks of taxpayer money over two years, it came up with what I think is the epitome of not news. And that is uh, the finding that a whole bunch of environmental NGOs got foundation funding from both sides of the border to run oil sands, climate, and pipeline campaigns, and they broke zero laws by doing so. Now, I know that the commissioner of the inquiry, Steve Allen, knows it's not news because I told him exactly that over a coffee in the summer of 2019, and that coffee only cost the taxpayer all of three bucks, not three and a half million bucks. But uh, you know, on, a, on a more serious note, given some of the, the wildly divergent and differing coverage of the report in the media and largely between left and right wing media that I saw, and of course, the, the usual Twitter rants, I'm worried that the report, and as silly and as I think as wasteful an exercise as it was, it puts us further down the path of conflict between the right and the left on climate. And I think this is at a time when we need fewer divisions, not more. And I'm worried that this thing has just created more divisions. So bit of a tongue-in-cheek segment, not news given this finding, but it does still trouble me and I'm worried about it. James, that, that I, I was really shocked by some of the comments coming out of Alberta cabinet that really 
you know, conceded nothing was illegal, but really wanted to say that it was just wrong for, for Alberts to be taking money to oppose the Sands and it kind of saying with strength that this is purely a uh, Alberta decision. And the answer is, it's not purely Alberta decision because we live on one planet with one atmosphere. It's just complete nonsense to say that. And it is reasonable to say Alberta has things it needs to protect and, and jobs to protect. But to just make a statement as bold as that this late the game struck me as pretty um pretty troglodytic which is not a word but yeah and i would contrast that with the with a really interesting new project out from um amy westervelt called rigged which is a, a really well-researched website and archive on the history of corporate funded disinformation um in this case more focused on the u.s but i i can imagine that many of those things would apply in canada as well too so uh, quite a contrast between the findings there and and the lack of findings in in this case yeah it's interesting around that the inquiry, and it's a story, let's be frank, it's, it's been around for 10 years. When I talk to journalists, with the exception of talking to National Post journalists, which, by the way, a study, our own National Post, found that it has the most anti-climate bias coverage of any publication in the Anglosphere over the last 15 years. Uh, but when I talk to any journalist, they would say, point out the, the sheer hypocrisy to begin with. So transboundary uh, international support for conservation issues is bad, but um, capital markets should have no boundaries and therefore capital flowing in from all sorts of places to develop the oil sands is good. And I think we need to get away from that just complete false dichotomy of good versus bad. Well said. All right. Well, let's launch the poll and let's bring our guest Stephen Barrett into uh, the conversation. By 2030, total global emissions from aviation will be... You have choices higher than they were in 2019. We are, by the way, using pre-COVID, sort of the last year of, let's say, stabilized aviation industry operations. Higher than they were in 2019, lower than they were, largely unchanged. So tell us what you think as you're doing. So Stephen's going to help us just understand some of the basics of aviation decarbonization. So Stephen, let's, let's put things in perspective around the gravity of the challenge. So what what kind of contribution does aviation make to annual globe, global emissions? And then therefore, by extension, you know, is it really an area that's important that we should be focusing on? Yeah, I'm like many things in, in engine climate. It's um, a matter of perspective and time scale. So if you took a sort of limited short-term perspective and said, well, I'm just looking at the emissions only of CO2 and only today, then the answer is something like 3% of global CO2. And from that, you'll conclude, well, probably not that big a deal. Um, but on the other hand, aviation's got a, one unique facet, which is that the, the impacts are roughly double those of just CO2 because the, the altitude at which emissions occur give rise to some phenomena that roughly double uh, the climate forcing relative to what you would get by burning the fuel at ground level. A second factor is that um, aviation is growing really strongly. Um, and to the extent we uh, expect the world to continue to develop economically, you'd expect aviation to double or triple its CO2 emissions by 2050 um, if things were on you know, the, the current trajectory. So you're going, let's say, let's call that, um, let's say we have 100 units of emission today. Uh, aviation is three, but we'll call that, let's say, six because we double it. And that's going to double or triple, right? So we're getting up to 10, 15 units. And I think we'd all agree we want to see sort of 80, 90, 100% cuts by 2050. So you go from 100 units a day down to, you know, 2010, zero, and aviation's gone from six 
up to sort of 1520. So you can see there's this kind of crossover where um, all else being equal, aviation kind of takes up the entire atmospheric capacity for uh, CO2 and other climate forces. So when you take that longer perspective, it, it really seems like an extremely tough challenge to face down. Great. And, and last time I checked, no one's talking about, say, carbon capture on jets and trying to take that CO2 and store it somewhere else. So we've got to look at sort of different decarbonization pathways. But before we get there, I want to go through a tour, tour de table of what those are. But give us a sense, how much um, of those emissions would be for personal travel versus how much would be for freight? Are we as individual passengers the baddies? Or is it the California lettuce that's flown into Calgary by air that I so like? Is that the baddie? Well, um, personal and business travel really are the, the vast, vast majority today. Um, but freight is not negligible and it's not an area that's been studied as extensively. But to give you a sort of illustration of the scale, the biggest single fleet in the US isn't American or Delta or United, it's FedEx, right? So, I mean, you know, it's, it, there are relatively few of these, um, of these companies of that scale, but uh, uh, they are growing and they're growing very fast. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's, that's helpful. Now, let's, Let's talk about the different aviation or sorry, decarbonization pathways. So you and I, Stephen, we had a pre-chat and we broke it out into four categories. So new propulsion systems like aerodynamics and tech, fuels and electrification, uh, hydrogen is there's a lot of buzz around it, operational approaches, and then economic measures. So let's let's start with that first one. What's going on with new propulsion systems? And I know you've done some direct research in that area yourself, which was sort of the topic of your last Quirks and Quarks appearance. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting one. I guess um, new aircraft and propulsion technologies are kind of classically what you imagine aeronautical engineers work on, right? They design, you know, uh, more pointy looking planes and uh, more efficient planes and faster planes and, and things like that. Obviously, in the, in, for the long-term future, that's that's critically important. And I think um, you know when you look out towards well into the second part of the century, that's going to be um, the most impactful thing in the long run. But on a timescale of twenty thirty or even twenty fifty, it probably isn't hugely important. And there's a there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, the, the first is that um, designing a plane, bringing it into service, and manufacturing it, and they're propagating through the fleet. That's something like a forty-year timescale. You know, say up to 10 years to bring a new plane in, then about 30 years to propagate through the fleet. So that takes us you know, well past any of these, these uh, timeframes we're really most worried about. Um, the second thing is that um, even if you could design a magic plane today, um, no one's going to throw away $2 trillion of assets that are airborne as we speak, right? They're, they're, they're just uh, extremely valuable to the world. And even if we had the money to throw them away and replace them, we couldn't because uh, aircraft manufacturing is totally maxed out. The back orders are there for many, many years. So if you want to buy a A320 today, you're out of luck. You're on a five or 10-year waiting list. So so there's no path that's realistic that really retires or replaces uh, present-day airplanes anything like fast enough to meet the, the climate challenges we face. Got you. Okay, well, we're going to talk about that one uh, later on when we all discuss what's the future of the industry and that kind of inertia that we see just from from the production cycle. Let's talk about fuels and electrification. Um, tell us, you know, I've heard about Wright Electric, uh, Harbor Air here in Canada on the West Coast. It's now got an, uh, an e-plane, it calls. And then there, of course, there's this whole field of sustainable aviation fuels or SAF. Sure. And, and I think um, 
when we're thinking in the in the nearer term, so you know, 2030, 2050 timeframes, SAF or sustainable aviation fuel, which used to be called biofuel, um, that's really where the biggest winds lay uh, when it comes to CO2 emissions. Um, and I mentioned CO2 is roughly half of the overall climate problem for aviation. So, so sort of to, to zeroth order, um, you solve CO2 for aviation by changing the fuel because the, the new technologies are going to be incredibly important for the second half of the century, but they're just too slow where we are now. Um, when it comes to electrification, this is again one of those things where it's, it's sort of a time scale. In the foreseeable future, there's there's no world we can see where large airliners are electric. There's there's just not a, a battery chemistry that's been demonstrated um, that has even the theoretical uh, specific energy to fly a large commercial airliner. There can be sort of smaller niche applications, maybe um, air taxis or very short range flights, things of that nature, and, and that will be great. And that will put us on the trajectory for you know longer term changes. Um, but but that's really planting the seeds for you know longer term change. However, I think electrification does come in in another sense, which is that, at least my perspective is that if you're going to fuel an airplane, um, let's assume we don't want nuclear reactors on planes. So that's sort of putting that aside. You know, people tried that once. So what can you fuel it with? Um, well, fundamentally, the energy will come from some fossil source. Um, so that's one option. Or it will come from a biomass source. So that's another option. Or it'll come from uh, some kind of uh, clean grid, you'd hope, you know, from electricity, bioelectricity, you'd say. So let's say we rule out fossil. So that leaves burning biomass that's been converted into fuel or creating fuel from clean electricity or some combination. And the biomass is, is where the industry is going in the near term. And that makes sense. It's the cheapest way to make fuel that is sort of uh, um, at least lower carbon. But um, at least the studies I've been involved in say there, there won't be enough biomass in the world to fuel all of aviation realistically. Maybe it's a quarter or a half. It depends on the assumptions. But essentially, you know, we've ruled out fossil for the future. There won't in the long term be enough biomass. So all you're really left with is, is relying on the grid and using electricity by whatever mechanism to create um, the, well, to put into some energy carrier for aircraft. So in a sense, Elon Musk was right that the future of aviation is electric just because there's no alternative, um, but probably not in the sense of having batteries on the planes, in the sense of having some kind of electric fuel on the plane. And that's sort of uh, really the inevit inevitable conclusion you draw when you look at the, the scale of the challenge we face. Um, and I think that's, that raises real questions for the rest of the energy sector is, is how we meet that challenge. So it we we're not going to switch jet fuel to direct electricity and have battery stacks on planes. We're not going to have nuclear reactors, like I said, CCS. But then talk about hydrogen. So what, yeah, I, that's what you're talking about is using electricity to produce hydrogen. Not not necessarily. I mean, I, I'm saying I think inevitably we have to use electricity to create a fuel. And then you know, if you have clean electricity, you can make many kinds of fuel from it. You might do direct air capture to get carbon from the atmosphere, and in a sense, use the carbon as the carrier to hang some hydrogen off, and then you create a synthetic fuel that's pretty much the same as you have today. Um, that looks pretty attractive in many ways. It's, it's uh, proven to be safe. Aviation is profoundly safe now. We're not going to want to back off on safety. Um, it's um, got a lot of technological advantages. Um, you could make it carbon neutral with, with clean electricity, but you could say, well, why don't we try other fuels? And, and one of the other fuels, as you mentioned, is hydrogen. And... Um, in some sense, it's not really an either or because if you want to make um, synthetic fuels at a large scale, 
you're going to create hydrogen at massive scale in any event. So, you know, all futures for aviation require vast amounts of hydrogen, whether it's biofuels, you need loads of hydrogen to put into the processing of that, uh, whether it's synthetic electrofuels that look like today's fuels, but are made from electricity, you need loads of hydrogen to put into that. Or maybe you say, well, just burn the hydrogen on its own. And, and that has some pros and cons. Um, one of the big pros is that it costs less energy to make the hydrogen um, per megajoule of hydrogen in the plane than it costs to make the synthetic fuel. Maybe it's a third less, depends on estimates. Um, so you might say, well, let's spend less energy and make the hydrogen. On the other hand, the plane probably burns about 20% more energy when it's a hydrogen plane because the, the fuel is volumetrically bigger and makes the plane draggier, the tanks are heavy and things like that. So, so in some sense, it's just a sort of economic balance as to which one is more effective overall. It's not fundamentally um, that different. It's, you know, both, both could be carbon neutral and um, both do rely on electricity in my view. Gotcha. Okay, well, let's go through these last two categories and bring David and Sarah to the conversation. So the third one is operational approaches. And, you know, I, I remember I took a smarter driver course. I drove from in Alberta Medicine Hat to Calgary with a smarter driver instructor next to me and just a regular internal combustion engine car uh, and decreased uh, my fuel consumption by about 30%. Is there an equivalent for aviation? Yes and no. I mean, aviation is very different to um, road transport in that, you know, if, if we were all uh, rational human beings, which thankfully we're not, or life would be very boring, I guess, we wouldn't be driving around, uh, you know, nice cars and things like that. We'd all have very small, very efficient cars with no acceleration margin, right? And that would sort of at least halve the, the fuel consumption sector, probably more. Um, but, but that's, you know, that's just not who we are. It's not realistic. But in the case of air travel, the, the planes are pretty well optimized. I mean, there's very little left you could possibly do. The, um, the, the whole industry has been strongly aligned with mitigating fuel burn for, for decades and decades. Um, and, um, you might have a few percentage points left of fairly marginal things like routing slightly more efficiently, things like that, but it's a very small opportunity pool. Still worth tackling and still important to do because, you know, it's, it's a free gain in a sense when it comes to climate. Um, but there is another way to look at that, which is that I mentioned only half of warming from aviation was from CO2. Almost all of the other half is from what are called uh, contrails or condensation trails. And these are kind of thin kind of line-shaped clouds you sometimes see in the sky behind airplanes, they, um, they serve to trap some of the outgoing radiation from the Earth and roughly double the warming from aviation. Now, it looks pretty likely it's possible to fly in a way that avoids creating those, and that would provide a path for significantly reducing aviation's climate impact. Got you. Now, just quickly, they act as like a jacket. I've heard the analogy, but they also act like a shade. Contrails also reflect heat back. They reflect sunlight back up into the atmosphere. But yeah. Sierra, you're saying on a net-net basis, it is uh, very much liability. Yeah, on, on a net basis it is. And, and it has uh, some of this sort of physics is a, is a bit like one of uh, David's areas of academic study where if you put um, uh, particles in the atmosphere, it will sort of flatten the temperature profile and has lots of effects like that. But really the first order effect we care about is just that it's it's um, a significant warmer for for the industry for the size of the industry gotcha okay and then very quickly this last one economic measures you know we talked about offsets i can go on and there are any sorts of all sorts of flight calculators that allow me to offset the emissions from my flight i went on one for giggles the other day and it said uh for however many bucks it was that i would burn 
0.76 of a metric ton taking a flight from uh, Calgary to Toronto. We don't want to dissect, slice and dice all offsets, but it just quickly, it, it, is that, you know, is that still an aviation decarbonization pathway? Does that offer any kind of promise? I suppose in, in my view, I think um, offsets are part of the journey, but they're not really the destination. I mean, ultimately we need to get to uh, zero, right? And, and when you're at zero, there isn't a whole lot of room for buying offsets by investing in other carbon reduction schemes and whatever else it might be. So I think it's all fine and, and useful to do it in the near term. And you have, you know, some airlines are really pushing the boundaries like uh, Delta, for example, is a carbon neutral airline. And okay, you could have arguments about how, you know, what, what percentage of the offsets are really there or not. But I mean, it's still going to be a very big saving that's made made a difference. And uh, I think it's it's good to do, but I, I don't think we should rely on that as the as the solution as we approach 2050. Great. Okay. Let's go to Dave and Sarah. But first, the poll, 48% of you think that emissions from an aviation will be higher than they were in 2019. Only 12% of you think they'll be lower than they were in 2019. And 40% think largely unchanged. All right, David, Sarah, given what you've heard, what changes realistically do you think we can expect the industry to make between now and 2030, given that most of our audience here, they're not terribly optimistic about the progress that we'll make in that time frame? So I, I agree, you know, obviously in the short term that I think the capital turnover is a big challenge. Um, I think one of the biggest things that we're seeing in the short term is some of the behavioral changes um, that are coming both from individuals around flying choices, um, but also um, around just alternative ways of, you know, getting from point A to point B. And, and some of those are really coming about not just from, uh, you know, individual kind of desires, but actually because of government action, right? So you have France, for example, banning all all flights that are less than uh, 2.5 hours uh, where they can be replaced by trains. Um, and so I think that is, you know, in, in places that you have to build a lot of new trains, that's, of course, more, more challenging. Um, but in places where you can use existing rails and implement, um, you know, overnight service, things like that, that provide you a different way of getting from point A to point B that from a consumer perspective isn't necessarily actually any worse and in some cases can be more pleasant than flying. Uh, I think you have an opportunity there. Um, but I would just point out on that that I think that's a great example of sort of something that feels a little bit like a individual level decision, but actually has a lot of kind of government policy and systems change as its root because, you know, as an individual, I can choose to take a train, if, but only if that train is available and if it actually goes where I need to go and it's comfortable and I can sleep on it and, and, and. So I think it's a, it's a good example where, um, you know, it's going to be, again, I think, driven quite a bit by regulations, um, which are also, I would note, starting to come in more, at least on the international side too, right? So um, looking at the challenge of, uh, of the use of, or of carbon emissions from international flights is something that has been largely out of scope for um, the majority of you know, carbon pricing systems that have been in place. And I think that's also starting to shift. Great, David. You want one comment is just sort of to go back to something that, that that drive home something that Steve said, which is just how implausible it is that you're going to do batteries for um, for long haul flights. Just just maybe saying the numbers is useful. So long haul flights, and Steve can correct my numbers if I'm wrong, but are of order forty percent fuel at takeoff by weight. That could be a little more, a little less. And current batteries have energy densities that are of order thirty times worse than fuel. And of course, there's some efficiency benefit for batteries, but 
But when you put that together, it just seems really unbridgeable to me that you've got to do battery. So kind of reinforcing idea, this is really has to be about fuel choice or some combination of fuel choice and improving the efficiency of aircraft. Um, I think, I think behavioral changes are going to help, but I think it's important to say how far we are from saturation for aircraft compared to other transport modes. So for lots of us in the developed world, if you gave us free car travel, we wouldn't travel much more. But for many people, if you gave them free air travel, they travel more. If you look globally, it's clear when and there's some beautiful Boeing figures that show this, obviously Boeing trying to sell their service, but it's clear there's an enormous number of people who would like to travel by a plane much more than they do. So the kind of inherent demand is there. And I think, I think we should be cautious about generalizing from other relatively well-off rich country people about how much shifts in habits are going to change the underlying driver of demand. And, and the final comment is just how extraordinarily efficient aircraft are. Aircraft now have something like one megajoule per passenger kilometer, which is as good at walking, better than lots of driving modes. And, uh, and depending on the rail system, it's, it's significantly worse than rail, but the gap depends on rail. So, so it, it's sort of stunning how good conventional aviation is. And it's likely to get better because there are ways to get another, you tell me, Steve, but I think if you imagine some of these very high efficiency designs, there's maybe another factor of two out there over the next three quarters of a century. Yeah, I, th- I think a factor of two is is a pretty good estimate. Um, the um, the thing about the factor of two is that it's it's in the 2050s, 2060s, 2070s, and we need that factor of two, but uh, um, we need to move out on the operational and fuel-based measures between now and then, I think. Yeah, yeah and, it, and so, Stephen, I mean, uh, you, you made a compelling case for why we're not going to get to new propulsion systems uh, you know, really new mode of aircraft, as you said, no one's going to throw away 2 trillion of assets. Um, and I, I didn't realize that, you know, like so many things with supply chains these days, you want a new plane Well, it's wait, hurry up and wait for five to 10 years. But when I think of the opportunity, like 20 to 30% of an airline's operational expenditure, OPEX is fuel. So if you attach a higher carbon price to that fuel, and then you do things so, yeah, there's not much governments can do to increase the supply of biomass, for example. So that's the limitation. But then there are things that they can do to make hydrogen easier to produce. And there's lots of this governments in Canada or provincially here in Alberta are trying to do that. So do you see the acceleration of, of hydrogen as a fuel carrier for aviation? Could it sort of fit within that 2021, 2030 timescale? Or is it still going to take a long time to ramp up? I think my view would be that it's probably not going to uh, make a significant difference on a 2050 timescale. I mean, e- even if um, hydrogen production was scaled up to the extent it'd be the primary fuel, um, even if you know major manufacturers decided tomorrow to start a design program to create a plane that would fly in the early 2040s or let's say let's say 2030s, so to be optimistic, you know, th- then then you have to start introducing it into the fleet gradually. There'll be There'll be one one type of plane, maybe it's a narrow body, uh, gradually starts displacing the Airbus A320s and the 737s. It's going to be a slow process, and, and mm. it's also aviation's uh, not a not a constrained business. Right, if you take something like trucking, you could potentially have regionalized solutions for decarbonizing trucking. Maybe it's an ammonia fuel in some place, and it's uh, either LNG somewhere else, and it's whatever um, battery somewhere else. But w- whatever they are, you, you could at least regionalize it to some extent. Regionalizing aviation is possible but but hard so you know maybe if you had hydrogen 
infrastructure for refueling over all the main U.S. airports. Then you could have flights within the continental U.S. that are hydrogen-based. Maybe you could do that for Europe, but it's it's still not a great proposition for airlines that like to be able to use their planes everywhere or for leasing companies that want to be able to lease out the airplanes to um, loads of uh, companies, loads of airlines. I think- and we know... Um, we know the, the the industry really values flexibility because it, the average flight you take is on an airplane that's uh, way way over specced for the mission it's flying. So the average flight is something like a uh, thousand kilometers or a bit more than that. Um, but the planes can fly, you know, an order of magnitude more than that often. So so really the the airplanes can do much more in terms of mission than uh, than they're being asked of. And the reason is because these things are so hard to come by that you want them to be flexible to perform all kinds of different uh, missions that might be the past of them. I, I think of a hydrogen trade-off this way, that, that the hard part is getting carbon neutral hydrogen in huge quantities. But once you've got that, going if you have hydrogen and you've got CO2, going to fuels by synthetic fuels, by Fischer-Trope or some other route, that has an uh, efficiency, an energy efficiency that's over 70, uh, can be around 80. And, and um, the capital cost is not that gigantic. And yet the benefit of those fuels of being compatible with existing infrastructure and higher energy density is really big. So it seems to me that that once you've got cheap uh, carbon neutral hydrogen, while there is a fundamental energy density benefit to hydrogen, which is much more important for aviation than anything else, it may be that that going to some kind of hydrocarbon will keep winning for a long time because of compatibility and storage. And even just in terms of if you were to design the best fuel for an aircraft, you probably would end up with something pretty similar to a jet A fuel today. I mean, it's 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 pretty good. It's it, we, we've sort of been through the periodic table and can't really come up with something a whole lot better as as luck would have it. I mean, ammonia is too uh, low in energy density or a specific energy. Hydrogen's um, uh, volumetrically too too low in terms of it's, uh, it becomes too large. Um, storing hydrogen is terrible. Tanks are heavy. The planes get heavier. Um, technically. Jet A is a pretty good fuel. You just don't want it from fossil sources. Yeah. So I, I must admit, that coming in, I knew very little about aviation decarbonization. I'm learning a lot. One of the things I'm learning is that uh, those uh, wedges that I think could make a real difference are going to take decades to deploy. That the sort of the fuel-based or the electrification-based wedges that would make a little, little, uh, a much smaller degree of difference. They're the ones that you could possibly deploy on a shorter time frame, but again, it makes a little difference. So then as a government, what, what are you to do? Because aviation is this growing share of global emissions. Every government worth its salt has not just a 2030 target, it's got a 2050 target. And yet you got this very complex industry where you have governments and customers seemingly on one side, customers want to do the right things, but then you have the airlines themselves. Uh, and then the plane and component manufacturers on the other side, and they're really resistant to any kind of disruption. So you're a good bureaucrat. What's the role? What can you do to try to get this industry to change? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think um, there's a lot of will out there to make change, especially within industry. To pet, you know, in the past two years, there's been a sea change in the appetite to to um, approach change and approach it quickly. So I don't think. Unlike a few years ago, um, willingness within the manufacturers or the airlines uh, is actually that much of a problem. Um, the problem is sort of converging on what the solutions are, which um, uh, also needs leadership from government and having uh, some kind of level playing field because you know you do have significant environmental 
measures have been taken by some airlines, but they're not going to put in, you know, many billions. I mean, one, one airline's put in something like a billion, but not going to put in many billions unless they know that all the competitors are going to have to do the same thing. So, so there does have to be a level playing field. And you could do that by a carbon price or by a more, more of a patchwork of regulations or, or different approaches. But essentially, we need SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, scaled up very quickly. Um, we need to start creating e-fuel, electrofuel, or power-to-liquid plants. In other words, using electricity plus probably direct air capture to create um, carbon-neutral fuels as quickly as possible. That would need um, you know, stimulus from the government and, and whatever policy framework makes sense in the, in the region. And th- those, I think, are the two things that could be scaled up over the coming decades and make a real difference. At the same time, continuing to provide investments in the fundamental aeronautical R&D makes sense, but that's, that's been happening for many years anyway. So in a sense, that's just continuing down that track. Yeah. And, and to be clear, thanks, Stephen, that's helpful. It's not like governments are sitting back and not doing anything. So in this country, we have a government that's got a carbon price that will go up to $170 per ton by 2030. And it's got programs, incentives, mm-hmm. you know, sky's the limit program that uh, is a government of Canada program that is really trying to create that incentive to create low carbon fuels. Sarah, I mean, are you optimistic or pessimistic about where we're going? Are you one of those ones who think that airline or sorry, aviation emissions will be higher than 2030 or can we bend the curve? I mean, 2030 is, is short for sure. I think, it, you know, one thing is to see actually what's going to happen, you know, coming out of of the pandemic of like where actually airline travel goes back to and how that recovery goes in the, you know, as, as it drags out longer and longer, I think that can look different and different. Um, I think, you know, in addition to, to what Steve's laid out about the kind of different timelines and what we can do on the shorter term with the synthetic fuels while developing those planes, uh, for the longer term, I think the other way that I would cut that is around, you know, the short, medium and internet and long haul uh, distances, where I think also excuse me, the solutions are are very different there. Um, but I do also, I mean, I come back again to this this point of like really looking at, can we, w- when we don't have those technologies to completely decarbonize air travel, when do we need to have a more serious discussion about how much we're flying? And I mean, I realize the irony of me saying this as someone who I don't fly a lot. Now I have uh, all my family lives outside of Canada, so I, you know, I'll fly to see them. But other than that, um, not a lot. I used to fly quite a lot for for my job. So, you know, I was one of the one of the baddies. But but I think there's some real equity concerns here when you look at, you know, the the people that are listening to this podcast and, and the four of us sitting around here are actually part of a relatively small group, right? Depending on where you look. So in the, I couldn't find the Canadian data, but in, in the US, it's 12% of people that are responsible for two thirds of flights um, that, that happen. And so, you yeah. know, I think we sometimes look at this and with a little bit of a blind eye towards, you know, how much flying a lot is part of uh, everybody's life and how much we can think about not, you know, making deep self-sacrifices because I think there's only certain numbers of people that are willing to, you know, get on a boat to, uh, to go visit family overseas. Um, but really looking at, you know, where are we flying and, and how much of that is replaceable? Because you look at the, at the global growth in flights and the idea that in, you know, 2019, um, the stat I found at least was about 5% increase in passenger kilometers traveled. And that's much higher than, you know, the GDP growth uh, globally in that year, which was around 2%. 
And it actually looks even worse for places like, uh, you know, Europe, which had about a 6.6% increase in passenger kilometers traveled uh, versus, you know, a 2% increase in, in GDP. So I do think that we need to start having some of those hard conversations, not in the flight shaming and, you know, nobody should ever get on an airline. And, you know, I would be the first person to say, I'm not going to get on a, on a boat to go visit my, uh, my in-laws in Europe, right? That's, that's not the world that I live in. But I think there's a big world between saying, I'm never, ever going to fly again. And I'm going to, you know, hop on a plane to a, a desert vacation or a you know, the beach vacation just because I can. And part of that, I think, is then coming back to, you know, whether it's carbon pricing or other ways, are we really actually reflecting the full cost um, of air travel in the falling prices, uh, ticket prices that have encouraged a lot of this travel to happen? So I think that there is, you know, I, I, I am... I think as people know, I'm also somewhat, I guess, of a techno-optimist. And, and I do think that obviously we do need to work on those technology solutions. And I do think that we can get there as well. But I think in the, especially in the interim, we do need to take a hard look at, you know, just how much moving about the world we're doing and ask if that's really uh, compatible with, you know, with the situation that we're in. And don't you think we could do with a little bit of flight shaming? Like you said, we shouldn't, but... That, well, what's wrong with the Swedish approach? They're, they're full-on flights shaming. And I've got European friends. And, and prominent ones who now feel that they're compelled to make public commitments that they'll stop flying. Yeah, I mean, there is some interesting also research. I'll have to look up the, the paper itself. But this concept of, you know, there's something that's the opposite of that, where you have, you know, the very upper end of, of wealth in a society sort of starts to drive these increasingly consumptive behaviors. And so the idea out of, you know, constantly flying around for vacations and things like that, I think is something that, that we need to look at and ask, you know, does that make sense? Um, this is not all a ploy to, to get out of making flights to go see my in-laws in, uh, in Europe, just to be clear. But, uh, but I do think that there is, you know, this question of what, what changes can we make again without asking people to make what they feel like are, are really deep sacrifices. And I think that that is a conversation that, that needs to happen more. Yeah. And, and I guess a, a question that I have is to what degree are we going to see business travel bounce back? So here's the pre-COVID situation. I did a little straw poll in the hockey dressing room yesterday. And there's a guy who is a former energy uh, industry executive. I said, how many hours a, a, a month do you think you're spending on flights? And he was saying sometimes 80. Like, think of that. 80 hours, like a general work month is 160 hours, right? You know? The average are 171, you know, fully half that time as a high-flying executive literally spent on flights. But now when you talk to people post-COVID and given how familiar and comfortable we are with video and telecommunications technologies along the lines of what we're using today through this Zoom-based webinar, people are saying, I'm never going to go for one meeting for something you know, I'm going to sit there and, you know, people would do that. They'd fly ridiculous different uh, distances to have one meeting. And they're not going to do that anymore because we've had 18 to 20 months of good training and how we can have still good, seamless communication without doing that. And the technology is only getting better. Zoom technology during COVID has gotten better. Now we've got the metaverse that uh, the, good the good folks at Facebook are going to develop. So not only can we meet each other on Zoom, we're going to put in our VR goggles and meet and have a, a richer interaction. So I really wonder if we've knocked out a chunk of business travel um, that uh, just from this long forced, um, uh, you know, this long period of forcing us to stay in our home offices and talk to each other remotely. I, I think it might um, have, have uh, effects that are hard to predict in the sense that 
I'd say most of my academic collaborations were created over Zoom, and most of those led to in-person meetings later because as well as learning the benefits of uh, Zoom and Teams and all these other things, we've also very much learned the limitations, right? We, we know what we could achieve in these formats, and we also know that we need to meet sometimes. And I guess f- for myself, I would take a, take a similar approach to what you mentioned, Ed, that um, I can't see myself going for day, day trips to DC for a, a one-hour meeting anymore. I mean, I think that's clearly not necessary. But for serious work and serious conversations where you want to creatively develop ideas with teams and build relationships, I think we know that Zoom isn't uh, really the, the format for that. So, so it's, it's hard to know whether this, this will serve to create more connections in the future that can lead to more flights or less. Um, Stephen, you're, like, you're not a techno optimist. Like you're not a techno optimist. Like Sarah, you work at the great technology school of MIT. Can't you imagine what? having that same co-creativity through VR goggles and some gloves? M- maybe sometime, but I, but I'm, I guess I'm a techno optimist, and I think we will solve this because I mean, you know, I, I, I could see we could have aviation's climate for, footprint within five years by doing contrail avoidance, which we we didn't get onto in detail. But there's definitely a, a low cost, very doable way that to. Reduced by always fifty percent aviation climate footprint very quickly. So, you know that gets us halfway there. And then the other piece of it is that if we can solve the overall energy problem for the energy sector, um, then we can solve aviation. So I outlined at least my view that aviation relies on clean electricity. So we need clean electricity. If we can do that, then we can solve aviation as well. So, provided we're able to solve the rest of the climate challenge, which you know I hope we all have optimism we can do then it's kind of inevitable we could solve the aviation part as long as we build the link between the two, which is the, the fuel production from you know, electrofuels or whatever it might be. I want to ask about the contrails thing because we, 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 we brought that in early and, then, and we just ended up talking about the fuel burn. But, but 50%, uh, you know, that, that equivalent of a 50% uh, uh, cut in three in five years is a giant thing. And I guess I really want to get a sense from you, Steve, of how plausible it is, what you think the barriers are, what do you think it would mean if we do that? How does that, frankly, open up a kind of different view of climate where short-term forcers and reinforcing are part of the game? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's very, very plausible. I mean, a lot of um, uh, computational studies that suggest you could eliminate almost all of the warming contrails for something like uh, 1% or 2% of fuel burn penalty. And we're now in the final stages of preparing a trial with a major airline um, to demonstrate that. And there are also some new um, new capabilities that the world has that we didn't have 10 years ago that make it much easier. One is machine learning, which means solving, in particular, identifying contrails is much easier than it used to be before. And the other is um, uh, sort of high-resolution geostationary satellites like NASA goes west and east, where we can almost in real time see the contrails forming, use machine learning algorithms to identify them, and then Put out advisory saying avoid this contrail forming part of the airspace, and so I think it's 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 very doable. It's uh, it's the cost is something like one or two percent of fuel burn, and the prize is something like fifty percent of warming. So I think it's it's really uh, um, the fastest and cheapest way to make progress. And uh, in the case of aviation, that's the thing you kind of start with. I think as you ramp up the the SAF and the e fuels, that's a huge huge thing to say. All right, let's get to the Q&A portion. We've got 15 minutes left today. So the first one, uh, and Roman, apologies if I mispronounce your last name, Zomback. Stephen, can you talk about the best e-fuels candidates, um, especially from an onboard feasibility? And if you can, this is the, for bonus points, kind of list from least expensive up to most expensive or most challenging. I, I think the highest priority one is um, 
is is what me uh, uh, what Romans called e kerosene. In other words, a uh, synthetic version of of current day fuel because that way it can go into the existing refueling infrastructure, the existing airplanes. Um, it's already certified. Uh, well, at least something very close to it's already certified up to fifty percent. So it'd be easy to get through the safety checks. So you could you could make a difference very quickly by scaling that up. Going for something like ammonia has a a lot of challenges. I mean, um, for example, uh, ammonia slip would likely have detrimental effects on air pollution uh, by increasing um, ammonia uh, ammoniated sulfate compounds and ammonium nitrate in the atmosphere. So that would, that would be a downside, and probably there'd be ammonia leakage associated with that. It's also not great in terms of the specific energy, um, so you'd have challenges of of just flying far enough. Um, it's not the uh, the nicest substance to handle so there'd be safety challenges associated with it so i can't really see any any real benefits for aviation going to ammonia um other sectors that you could argue a different case for example shipping you can you can make a case there that's a bit different um then um yeah i I mean i think that that then once you get outside those sort of ones that there's a infinite list of of carriers you could invent but uh, having gone having the team at mit gone through the periodic table it doesn't look like there's anything that has any particular significant benefit over um, hydro, hydrocarbon fuels that look like jet A. I mean, in a sense, it's kind of obvious that the you know we could have chosen one of many different kinds of hydrocarbon fuel, right? And people chose what we call kerosene or jet A, and they chose that because it was good for this purpose. All right, let's let's go to our second question. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, and uh, the old energy versus climate standby. Sorry, Robert, I shouldn't call you old, but uh, our faithful listener and webinar participant, Robert Tremblay, has a question about other modes of transportation. So over to you, Robert. Thanks. Yeah, so this um, sort of touches just on what uh, Sarah was saying earlier. But um, so stuff like um, France's ban on short haul domestic flights, like if we're thinking about decarbonizing aviation, are these places where um, climate activists should be putting their attention on um, stuff like mode switching to rail. I, I could give a perspective as well. Maybe maybe Sarah could expand on that. I, I thought Sarah made a lot of really amazing points. And um, I think um, for myself, I have a more, uh, I guess, technocratic view of the future. Right? I think more people should be able to fly. You know, I want everyone who's uh, entering the middle class in China and everywhere else to be able to fly, to be able to experience education and employment and cultural opportunities around the world. And I think aviation has changed the world for the better to make it a place of more understanding, more education, more enlightenment, and more peace. And I think um, if we reduced aviation's uh, accessibility, all of that would go backwards. So so I want a future of more aviation, not less. So I think we, we need to come up with technological solutions. The other thing I'd say is that we, we discussed that, you know, alternative fuels will be more expensive. There might be let's say two, three, four times more expensive. Um, and that will pose an accessibility challenge, but the world is getting richer. Um, and aviation has thrived in in the past when the fuel has been much more expensive, you know, more than double the price of today. So we know that the industry can thrive and grow at a much higher fuel price. Uh, and that's in part because elasticity for demand for aviation is is pretty low. People will still fly even if the fuel price is double or more. So I think... Um, there is scope for higher cost fuels. Yeah, maybe just two quick thoughts on that. I think I think the 
On the first point, to me, one of the questions is a more equitable distribution of, you know, aviation, right? And so this idea that there are, there's a small portion of people that are doing the vast majority of the flying, I think is, is one place to look on that question of, you know, flying more and less and, and sort of what is the, you know, what, what's a reasonable amount, I guess, I don't, I don't know exactly how to put that, but, um, but I, there to reduce uh, demand, especially in kind of the shorter haul and, and domestic type situations where we're seeing a lot of um, a lot of growth, there is really this element of the role of government and sort of if you provide an option that's actually better and more comfortable, then it's not a sacrifice for somebody to you know get on a night train and wake up somewhere new versus getting up at you know four in the morning as as I used to do to go to the airport and and have the you know unpleasant experience of of flying uh, and getting through security and all of that. So I think that's a that's a key piece of it. I actually wanted to come to a second question that Robert had also posed, but that I think it's maybe worthwhile going through. Maybe I'll put it to David, but this question of what is the, how do you think of the carbon benefit, the, the CO2 math of using DAC to create a CO2 feedstock for e-fuels versus simply using DAC to, uh, you know, make the combustion uh, net zero effectively. So sort of on the input side versus saying, well, we'll actually just sell a bunch of offsets and build these, you know, big DAC farms like, like are emerging in uh, uh, Iceland and that will be the solution. There's a beautiful phase diagram you could make if you plot the oil cost on one axis and the carbon cost on the other. And that's in this carbon neutral transportation fuels paper I did a long time ago. And it's easy to show there's this sort of phase diagram where, you know, the, it, at the very low oil, oil cost place, then just DAC is offset works or whatever it is. And at the higher price, you make synthetic fuels. And you can see that there's a, a trade-off point in the middle. Um, um, I personally think the case for synthetic fuels is is not just that. I think there's a bigger case, which is about the global distribution of the underlying energy that's making the fuels. And my view is the environmentally compatible way to make the fuels is going to be solar. And that's going to be in places that isn't evenly distributed or in sunny places in the South. And that's where you're going to want to make the fuels. So I think that's part of the reason that I think going to fuels, um, whether it's hydrocarbons or, or other fuels potentially, is going to be so important. A question I have that David, you might know the answer to is um, one more one worry I have with the idea of burning fossil jet fuel and then using DAC to offset it is that are, are we then using up the global uh, reservoirs of capacity to then sequester CO two in the future? You know, assuming we'd like to over the next few centuries restore the planet by gradually removing CO two, and should we avoid using up those reservoirs, or is that so just not a concern? No, I think so. First of all, I don't think DAC is by any means the only way to do large-scale removal, but I really don't think removal volume is the issue. The issue are social and environmental harms of large-scale removal, which I think some of them can be big. But if you're just talking about poor space, uh, I think if you're willing to move fluids around in reservoirs, I was part of the sort of consensus IPCC report on this, and the the total volume is huge um, for CO2. That is many, you know, certainly in the many thousands of gigatons CO2 equivalent uh, but but that's even without some technological change. And if you count ocean alkalinity, then it's it's for ocean alkalinity, it's big enough that you actually you know are dealing with the whole fossil reserve. Yeah, just to weigh in on that one, I mean, Stephen, if you take the part of the country where Sarah and I and David live here in Canada, you've got forty six gigatons of storage space here in Alberta. You've got seventy six gigatons of space next door here in Saskatchewan. And then you've got, you know, a few gigatons here and there in other parts of, of Canada. So you definitely have the space, you got the technical expertise, you got the trades, know how to turn the wrenches. 
you have the infrastructure, you have a sympathetic government, but there are other barriers. And um, mm-hmm. at the top of the list is, is cost right now. And, and simply energy required too, right? That's always a big, uh, a big thing when we think about how much energy it takes to do this. Yeah, the energy isn't for the injection. The energy is... is no, sorry, for the, for the capture bar, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think I want to come back to the question, really issue questions about use. I do think that, that um, Sarah, you're right, that, that, that flying is one of the things where the, the, the wealthiest, I think, do have some duty to, to think about it. We can't all fly as much as we want and some equity of access to flying. I think, I agree with Steve, I think, it's important to say, and I really don't feel that we should make flying a bad thing. I think part of the reason we're not having global wars is that people can talk to each other face to face. And I think the benefit of being able to do that really means something to me, but it shouldn't be all just the richest few percent. And it isn't, in fact. And flying is, is much more equitably distributed than wealth. And I think what, what you really have to think about is how much of this kind of emerging middle class, you know, what their access to flying what their desire is and what a reasonable equitable access is given the carbon constraint. But, but I agree, I think you're right to, to talk about the, the way. Sure. And it's not a hard thing to imagine that we all fly a little less. I agree. Flight has gotten, brought me great benefits in my life, seeing family, new places. But certainly when I did, when I joined the Penman Institute years ago and I did one of those personal GHG calculations, uh, I thought I was doing well. I looked, given the Canadian household average on a per capita basis, I was well below it until I started layering back my business travel. And then that blew it away. And next thing I know that three quarters of my GHG footprint comprised of those flight related admissions, even though the calculators are highly fallible. To be clear, compared to the electricity I consume here at house in my house or the natural gas I can buy or other sources, what I get from driving my car, the flight emissions are huge. So just by flying a little bit less, we can, you know, help to sort of bend that down. But we're running out of time here. So let's end on, a, on an optimistic note. Peter Falloon has asked a question about momentum. So where does momentum on CO2 reduction exist in the aviation industry? Where, and I guess going back to you, Stephen, where, where are you seeing progress and where are you optimistic? I have to, just a, a slightly sharper version of that. Stephen, you, you talked about how slow it is to develop new aircraft. So let me turn that around. Let's say that you were somehow czar and you know, Airbus and Boeing were your command. I mean, is, are there government policies that could speed up the development of new aircraft substantially? If so, why? I think it's just a really tough industry. I mean, I think a lot of people don't um, realize just how incredible it is, right? I mean, the fact you can uh, board a vehicle that transports you at a thousand kilometers an hour through the night and puts you on a different continent. I mean, it's... Uh, and doing so in a way that's about, you know, an order of magnitude safer more than that than your trip to the airport. I mean, uh, this is a phenomenal industry that's been incredibly optimized and it sets such a high bar for itself in terms of safety that meeting that with major innovations is just a colossal challenge. And, and you know, you, we've all seen when the industry makes significant missteps and the you know, famous one a couple of years ago. Um, we're not willing to cut them any slack, right? So, so there's, we're not going to cut them any slack on making any errors at all, right? We demand total perfection when it comes to the safety of us and our families. And I think um, that's, that's not going to suddenly make it possible to design a 737-sized aircraft in two years, right? It's, 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 this is not the scale of the challenge that's faced. And th- these things also take, I think it's, I'd have to 
check my numbers again. We're talking many, many hundreds of human lifetimes to build each one, right? The, the investment yeah. in building them is absolutely cost. So it's uh, it's it's tough to to think of some policy that unlock, uh, you know, a super cycle of uh, uh, infinitely green aircraft that are perfectly safe tomorrow. I and mean, we have almost perfectly safe, but the infinitely green, we're we're really not there on. So, Stephen, going back to that momentum question, where where, where are you seeing traction, and and what what makes you optimistic? Well, I think control avoidance is one where I think um, there's uh, right now the snowball is sort of growing, and and I think over the next year or two, I'm hoping uh, we can really push that because I think the um, it always made sense in the past to focus on CO two in the public debate because people need to forget that it's the thing that matters most, but now. Everyone understands that, or everyone who's going to understand that, I think, understands that. And um, now it makes sense to start looking at other things. You know, in some sectors, it's methane. In aviation, it's contrails. And uh, in the case of aviation, that's half the problem, and we could solve it probably within five years. So I think it really makes sense to push on that. And then I think scaling up sustainable aviation fuels and hopefully moving towards demonstrators for e-fuels are the, are the areas where things are moving. Um, and if you take those things together, SAF, e-fuels, and control avoidance, um, if the energy sector can solve the problem of, of a clean grid, which is the if, then then you have a solution for aviation. Great. Good note to end on. And, and direction back to Robert Tremblay, what do we what can we focus on as consumers? SAF, contrails, and e-fuels. That's where we can push. Thanks. So a big thanks to Stephen Barrett for joining us today. Uh, I learned uh, a ton and uh, I would uh, harbor a guess that uh, everyone tuning in today did as well. So thank you very much. Thank you. Our next episode is going to be in a couple of years, a couple, couple of years, slip. Yeah, uh, a couple of weeks. And we're looking at doing a special topic about looking at careers in energy transition. We'll be sending something out shortly that gives you a little bit of direction about what we're looking for and, and uh, you can help. When you go on to a thing like Apple Podcasts, rate us. That really helps us to get the word out. So let us know what you think. Support us at energyversusclimate.com using our donate function. We're grateful for all support. Take care, everyone, and see you next time. Thanks for listening to Energy Versus Climate. The show is created by David Keith, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and me, Ed Whittingham, and produced by Eva Voynichescu. Mika McFarland provides webinar support. Our title and show music is The Wind-Up by Brian Lips. Sign up for updates and exclusive webinar access at energyversusclimate.com. Interact with us live every other week and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen.